Hi, I'm Reg Hardwick, and today I'm here with Russ Tubner, co-founder and CEO of Hostbridge Technology. Russ, welcome. Tell us about yourself. How did you end up in the world of mainframe? Hi, Reg. Well, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to visit today. Uh, um, wow, how did I end up in the land of the mainframe? <laughs> uh, it uh, feels like a long and torturous story. Um, you know, I was uh, in university uh, in the late 70s. And actually, uh, when I was in, at attending university, I worked for the university's computer center and became an, uh, a mainframe IBM 360 370 operator. And that was my part-time job to help uh, put my way through school. And then after I graduated, they liked me, I liked them. And that was my first job of working in this data center. And it was actually a golden era for learning that sort of technology because the late 70s and the early 80s, things were exploding, right? Campuses were exploding with uh, you know, personal computer technology. And frankly, in that era, in the name of academic freedom, no one could tell anyone else what to buy or not buy. And so universities were awash in the need to integrate technologies. Uh, but of course, the networking capabilities and architectures of that era were just so primitive compared to what we have today. But um, my job on behalf of that university was to make everything talk, make everything work. Mm. And that's really where I cut my teeth, not only in the world of all things mainframe, but also in the area of integration to and with mainframe-based systems, networks, and applications. So, you know, actually by the um, early 80, early to mid 80s, I had an idea for my first software product and company. Mm. I started that, uh, ran that for 20 years, uh, ultimately sold that to a, uh, a much larger French-based uh, software company. And right. then after doing a tour of duty with them in an executive position, I decided it was time to get back to my entrepreneurial roots. And um, I and Scott Glenn, uh, the other Hostbridge co-founder, uh, started Hostbridge Technology in order to pioneer some new areas of integration um, for mainframe applications. Interesting. So uh, now that would have been what, late 80s, early 90s? Well, when when Hostbridge started or or yeah, when Hostbridge started, yeah. we started Hostbridge right at the end of the 90s, really oh. uh, right around 2000. So, cool. uh, yeah. And that the was an era. And, yeah. And, and really the kind of the, the, the there was kind of a, a personal two things came together. One was kind of a personal vector, and that was that I had served a couple of years. I, I had fulfilled my obligation to the acquire of my prior company. Sure. But at the same time. IBM was coming out with a new version of Kix. Mm. Uh, and this was version one of what they were going to call Kix Transaction Server. Mm -hmm. And Transaction Server was going to have some new capabilities. And there were a couple of things under the covers of Transaction Server that really, really interested me. Uh, some of the things they were doing, uh, particularly they were preparing to offer an API under the covers mm. of Kix that for the first time ever would allow a programmer to be able to programmatically interact 
with a screen-oriented transaction uh, without any reference to rows and columns, in other words, without doing any screen scraping. Oh. And so that's really intriguing because the last product that we created at my first software company, Tubner & Associates, was, for lack of a better term, one of the world's biggest, baddest screen scrapers on planet mm. Earth. Um, and so, you know, the late 90s was a time where we were actively exploring, you know, how in that company and with that last product, how to do, you know, integration to the mainframe um, using screen scraping and those sorts of technologies. And of course, the answer is, it's, it, there's just no good way <laughs> to really mm. achieve effective, both performant and cost-effective integration using screen mm -hmm. scraping as an integration technology. And that was really something that we were trying to rectify with HostBridge. We wanted to completely rethink it. We wanted to com come up with a technology approach that would allow distributed components to be able to, or, or things, whatever those things mm. are in the outside sure. world, to be able to interact with mainframe screen-oriented applications without screen scraping. In other words, without making having any binding dependencies mm. on rows and columns of where the data existed. Because our view had been and has always been, as soon as you build distributed applications or things out there outside the mainframe that have, you know, that rely upon this binding relationship to mm -hmm. where a particular field is on the screen, you're sunk, right? Well, regression <laughs> testing becomes an incredible nightmare. Absolutely. And and you enter you enter a state that I somewhat, I guess, humorously call application rigor mortis. Because mm. as soon as you've got things outside right. the mainframe relying upon, you know, these fixed assumptions about that, you know, zip code or part number, only, you know, occurs on row three, column five for 12 spaces, that the, the ability to mature, enhance, evolve that application is frozen. Pretty much so. Gone. Basically, the distributed components become the legacy anchor, not the mainframe. Oh, absolutely, they be. I mean, that, I love the way you said that. It's it's they become the legacy anchor. I mean, the the fact is there are. I mean, there are a lot of applications running on mainframes today that yes should be modernized, ought to be modernized, can be modernized, but the reality is. One of the reasons they haven't been modernized at all, or at least as aggressively as they could have been, is simply because there are so many distributed components that are mm. interacting with those applications using these sorts of screen scraping techniques and thus have essentially interdicted the ability. Right. They, have, they, have, they have kind of just nipped it in the bud, the ability to really transform that application. So, um, and these are the class of customers that we tend to work with um, and to help with our technology, whether it's our integration technology or our analytics. So, yeah. Cool. Now, um, one of the things one may immediately think of is, I, mean, I have a background in COBOL and Kix programming, 
among other things, is, okay, well, if, if you're not talking to the screen, are you talking to the BMS map? Are you talking to the linkage section? You know, where in the transaction are you getting into to identify the, the data fields and name them in a consistent manner, even when they're placed on the screen changes? That's a great question. Now we're going to get kind of geeky and technical here. So <laughs> I've but, always been um, <laughs> I know, but let's do it anyway, right? Okay. Um, the what IBM did um, when when they turned that corner into transaction server, kind of in the transaction server 1.1 or two time frame, is they went back and they uh, took a look at that. You mentioned BMS maps, right? Mm -hmm. And what they did was that they changed under the covers the way those maps were generated. And what they added was this little, was this section of metadata mm -hmm. that actually described the screen. It described the fact that there was a field, there is a field, and that field is named, let's let's make it easy, part number, right? Okay. And the metadata, that's right. <laughs> And what the metadata described was really kind of the data structure through which that COBOL application interacted with the screen. Mm. Now, let me take, let me say this a little differently. Okay. And if you wrote a, as you did, you wrote COBOL programs back in the era and still it's going on with BMS or basic mapping support. The mm. COBOL program itself does not care and does not know when you're row and column a particular field occurs on. It just knows it by name. It does move, it moves a value into a field called part number. That's all mm -hmm. it does. The COBOL program doesn't know. It's mm -hmm. actually, it in and of itself is insulated from, from that right. vaguer, from that little detail. Well, of course, everyone on the outside world, if you're interacting with that application through kind of a 3270 data stream, well, then that's your only hope is to interact mm. with it based upon rows and columns. But what IBM did in, again, back in the transaction server version one era, was they added the metadata to the map load module so that we in mm. our code could go look at that and interact with that COBOL application on the basis of its data structure not the screen format. So when you use our technology mm -hmm. running on the mainframe under kicks and frankly on an, on a specialty engine, the zip processor, if you have one, so it's extremely right. performant and efficient. But when you run, when you use our technology to interact with that COBOL application that may have been written decades ago, Mm -hmm. You are interacting with it on the basis of those field names, on the basis mm -hmm. of that data structure that was mm -hmm. generated from BMS. So the way we completely circumvent the reliance on rows and columns is by leveraging what IBM added to the features that they added deep, deep under the covers of kicks mm -hmm. in order to let a program interact with a COBOL application using this common data structure as opposed so to... So you don't even have to change the code, the COBOL code, in order to do this. No, absolutely. The only thing we have to do is that the BMS map 
needs to have been recompiled somewhere mm. since about 2000 or 2001, right? Mm. As long as it's been recompiled or still could be recompiled, mm -hmm. then by recompiling it, it will go ahead and create that bit of metadata in the BMS load module. And that's the that is our reference point that allows us to we, we use that metadata dynamically in order to be able to chat with the application based upon the data structure it's using to both give and take field content. So uh, every now and then we and, and normally this is not a problem, right? Most companies, most organizations have probably recompiled their BMS maps sometime in the last two decades. Mm. But even those that haven't, um, it's not hard to reconstitute those BMS maps so that we can, in fact, uh, compile them with uh, or recompile them. Now, um, I, I assume that that's uh, there's still done. It's, it's been a few decades since I worked with Kate, but I assume there's still it's actually done as assembler macros. Is that a fair observation? Yeah, BMS maps have always been uh, described using a set of assembly macros where you define, you know, here's the screen and and then here's uh, the fields on the screen. And this is where you decorate it according to highlighting and color. And it actually, you know, the, the genius of it looking back was what the BMS map did was it really did create a a, a layer between the COBOL program that uses used the map and the outside world because again the it, it allowed the COBOL program to kind of be ignorant of where that data landed on a particular screen that's the job of BMS and the map um, but it was hard to kind of get between them right it was hard to to be able to kind of um, interdict that point of control until IBM created this API where where we can in fact now interact with the application so to your point the 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 application absolutely does not change it doesn't have to even be recompiled it just it's the application is kind of ignorant of the whole thing now, and we can still interact with it without any screen scraping now um, I'm, I'm thinking about this. Uh, if if uh, IBM is providing you with the data uh, as metadata, is it also providing you the information you would otherwise get from a copy book, or is it still useful to have the copy books for the data variables as well? Uh, we really don't need the copy book because we can oh. mine we can mine the uh, the BMS map at at in real time. So when and this all happens automatically. I mean, so mm -hmm. many. Uh, lots of integration technologies out there require you to download your BMS maps and harvest all this mm. data and do all this sort of stuff. And uh, we, when with our technology, you don't have to do any of that. It's just totally unnecessary because we're living on the mainframe under the covers of kicks. Mm. And so we're able to inspect or look at the contents of that load module. So when a COBOL application says, I would like to display a screen and it's the map is named X and the map set is named Y, mm -hmm. then 
what we receive from the application is a statement of its intent. In other words, we're sort of playing the role of BMS at that point. We okay. receive the directory with the directive. Please mm. display, I would like to send this map and here's a data structure that has all the data that you will need to fill in that map. Well, if BMA, if you're actually using a terminal, then BMS goes about its business and says, oh, great. It's a 24 row by 80 column terminal and I'll decorate it like this and I'll take those variables and I'll plug them in all the right location and boom, here it is on the screen. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what you would do if you're coming in from a screen. However, okay, so, so your, when, your application thinks it's just sending it to another terminal and you're acting in the place of that terminal. Absolutely. We're taking the role of BMS through this API. And so what we did, what we get is we get the directive from the application that says, hey, I want to display, you know, this BMS map and map set. And oh, by the way, here's a data structure with my data. What mm -hmm. we do is we take that BMS map name and map set. We go out and grab the load module that has that information no differently than BMS would have done. Mm -hmm. We then go down, review the metadata in the BMS load module. Again, we don't we have no intention of of interacting with or generating a 3270 data stream. We just want to interact with the application. And so the metadata tells us where how to, how to decode its application data structure that the application sent to us. Well, great. So we know the field names. We know the we have a data structure where all the data yeah, resides. We can grab that and now we can externalize it for application integration. And quite literally, the 3270 data stream is never generated. Hmm. It is it just it doesn't exist. It is never generated as output, nor do we generate it as input to the application because we are playing the role of BMS and and interdicting mm. that whole entire process. Cool. Now, uh, when you take that data, are you putting it into XML or a combination of formats or a set of optional formats? Yeah, that's it's a great question. We um, in the first version of the product that we came out with, which we now kind of look back and say, well, it was lovely, but it was it was like a, a good first start. Uh, what we did uh, since since this all grew up in the era of the the early 2000s was we expressed that information in XML. Mm -hmm. And so version one of the HostBridge integration engine um, allowed someone to be able to send in an HTTP request mm -hmm. with a set of parameters about the transaction they would like to invoke mm -hmm. and passed in a number of variables to that transaction, either as query parameters or in a payload. And then what we did was we invoked the transaction. We interacted with it according to, you know, the the uh, the directive, and then we returned the output as XML. Now, that was kind of version one. And what what we begin seeing, and of course, JSON kind of wasn't a thing then. JavaScript wasn't a thing then, um, and so XML made good sense. But what we saw customers do was, you know, no one executes just one transaction, right? Mm -hmm. They execute, they, they're trying to um, accomplish a work process. And historically, right. sorts of applications were kind of written um, such that you had to walk your way through a number of screens. And so what we saw our customers do 
was they would they would develop kind of these integration scripts. And so it might take the form of, you know, a, a program that they write um, in Java or back in those days, Visual Basic or something like mm. that. And, you know, they would automate this series of requests. So they'd send in an mm. HTTP request to run transaction A. They'd get the response back. They'd log it. They'd keep it. They'd mine it for whatever they want. They would then send in another HTTP request mm. and get back data. And we were working with our customers and we realized that they were doing this dozens and hundreds and sometimes even thousands of times. Mm. Well, we looked at that and we thought, well, that's that's just not efficient. That's just not, mm. that's, that's not anyone's idea of efficient integration. Mm. Trying to orchestrate all that fine grained activity from outside the mainframe. Mm -hmm. So we began looking at that with our customers and said, well, how do we solve that problem? How do we, I mean, what would it look like if we could orchestrate all of these fine grained interactions, these interactions that take microseconds or at most milliseconds. Mm. What if we could orchestrate those at machine speed oh. on the platform? In other words, oh. instead of, is there a way that we could do that? Well, we, we looked at that and we probably made, uh, for us, it felt kind of risky at the time. This was like 2005. So ooh, well over 15, let's see, 17 years ago. There was this thing, I'll call it a thing. There was this language just on the horizon. It was called JavaScript. Mm. And it was clear that JavaScript was about to kind of like take over the world mm. in terms of how we authored and operated web pages within a browser. That mm. handwriting was in the in the wall. The takeover hadn't quite, you know, been affected yet. A lot of people were still writing HTML pages absent JavaScript in that era. But it was clear that JavaScript was was destined to become probably the most widely known programming language or syntax on planet Earth, which it is. Hmm. So uh, Scott Glenn and I, uh, my Hostbridge co-founder, we we. We just also well, what we decided to do was to bet on JavaScript that it would not only become take over the client side, but it would take over the server side as well. Mm. So we embarked on what has now been a 17 year journey of of developing and offering uh, what is essentially the biggest, baddest server side JavaScript implementation on planet Earth. It's called HBJS. And that became our orchestration and automation engine that runs on System Z, mm -hmm. under Kicks, and on the Zip Specialty engine, assuming you have one. And what this engine does is you send that a single request to mm -hmm. H, what we call HBJS, and it's rendered HB.js to emphasize its JavaScript orientation. So you send a request, a single request to the engine, and then the engine follows the instructions that someone has written in JavaScript. And then we can orchestrate a dozen, a hundred, even a thousand interactions with not only 
terminal-oriented applications, but COM area programs or DB2 calls or vSAM data, oh. we can oh, wow. actually we perform all of that orchestration at machine speed, and then we yield a single composite response back. So the network now, latency is almost entirely eliminated. Oh, it's it it just absolutely it drops out of the equation, and by a, and so and that whole latency buildup. I'm glad you mentioned. I mean, that's, I mean, we now, now that we have, I know we'll talk about our analytics product in a minute, but now that we have a product that we can actually show customers the amount of latency buildup, mm. um, your comment is, is really spot on. And that is that it is not uncommon for organizations to have built processes, you know, that are doing automation outside the mainframe and by virtue of all of the discrete interactions back and forth, they end up with this buildup of latency. I mean, mm -hmm. we were working with one customer um, uh, a couple of years ago uh, with our analytics product where we were actually able to detect and calculate the latency. And in this one organization, we were able to do some analysis just for fun and determined that that um, how did we say it? that they were wasting an entire man person year of staff time every day every day they were wasting a person year waiting for automation scripts to run wow Due to the latency, so what we did, we 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 looked at this worldwide organization. We isolated all of this, you know, kind of screen scraping ish activity, and we we added up all the latency, and it was just staggering the amount um the amount of time that's being wasted uh, just due to that. So yeah, to your point, once we move the the point of orchestration onto the platform. Mm -hmm. and perform it at machine speed mm -hmm. now you have these huge trade-offs so a work process that might have taken 10 20 30 minutes i've seen them take five hours to run now they now they take seconds or actually mm. minutes, seconds and no more than minutes because we're doing all things at machine speed mm -hmm. and not the, and the whole workflow is not gated by the speed of your network. That's that's outstanding. I remember uh, back in the 90s, uh, I was working with an ERP implementation that was talking to DB2 on the mainframe from distributed and it was bringing down the mainframe practically and we, we you know, the deep diagnostics and discovered what was happening is it was doing a bind, query, unbind many, many, <laughs> many times a second. And it was bringing the mainframe to its knees. Uh, and, you know, that was, you know, obviously using even you know, uh, the, the available standards then to talk over the, the net to those things. It was still just, you know, without screen scraping being included. So, you know, when, when, oh, when yeah. you throw in the additional overhead of, of 3270 and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, that that reminds me of a number of customer scenarios that we that we ought to get into. But your point is, is spot on, Reg. It's that, you know, when you when you orchestrate things, these fine grained activities, whether it's running a transaction that given the speed of the mainframe, it might run a particular leg of a transaction might run in 200 microseconds. Right. Mm. 
Uh, when you're orchestrating that across even a modern, let's say a one gig backbone network between two endpoints, you're, when you're orchestrating that at network speed, you're still way out of whack, right? In terms of, of time. Um, for example, that that one customer I mentioned where we did a study of, you know, kind of the business impact of all this latency, um, an exacerbating factor was was that the the servers on which they were running kind of the automation that was interacting with these screen oriented apps is located, I think it was located in Chicago. And the mainframe was located at a data center down in Dallas. And there's a one gig pipe between them. Well, when these um, when these scripts start to run hot and heavy, what do you imagine is the biggest consumer of that one gig pipe, right? Well, it, it's all of this screen scraping activity that's going back right. and forth and back and forth. Mm. And so, and and that's where this latency comes up. I mean, I, I've seen this, We it, it's not uncommon. We're, we're looking at customer data every week. And it's not uncommon to see scenarios where you have distributed components outside the mainframe trying to automate something on the mainframe and that the level of intensive, that the activity level, the intensity of interaction is so severe that if this was a security context, we would call mm. it a denial of service attack, mm. right? And that's so really what it looks like. You right. want it as close as possible to what you're automating. You know, the further away you are, it's, it's like trying to automate something you know, around Mars, you know, from Earth. You know, you, you have such an incredible latency. That's exactly right. and that and and so that's why we philosophically just decided to go for this this uh, this solution that said, okay, let's we're we're going to be the team, we're going to be the company that champions the cause of doing automation on the platform at microsecond speed and running on a zip running on a zip engine if you have it. So that, I mean, it's it just it just it, it is it is as efficient as as we or I think anyone might be able to conceive it as being. And it makes mm. all the difference in the world when you do it there. Now, I'll also throw in one of the things that our customers are also pleasantly surprised by is not also does latency drop through the floor for these business processes, but also their CPU time goes down. Mm. Now, how, how is that possible? Like by what laws of physics can you can you pull that one off? Well, it's it's kind of interesting. You know, sometimes we forget the overhead it takes just to ho just just to convey that one interaction from something emulating a 3270 mm. terminal, right? Yes, it went across the network. Now it entered uh you know, the mainframe. Now it's passing through VTAM and it's probably mm. going to go through a session manager. And then the mm. session manager is going to pass it over to Kix. And then mm. Kix is going to drag it through its terminal control layer. And if it's BMS, it's going to drag it through BMS. Mm. And then as soon as the application does its thing, in a you know, a handful, you know, 50 microseconds or whatever, the output is going to transit all the way back through all of those layers on the mainframe. Mm. Now, that's measurable 
overhead, right? That's it's 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 measurable. We and with our integrations in, engine, or I'm sorry, our um, our analytics engine now, we can actually measure that and we can size it mm. and we can see the wastage. And so, the fact is that yes, doing automation on the mainframe is you're still going to let's say even if you run the exact same transactions, right? Un, no change. You're still going to. I mean, the transactions are still going to incur whatever overhead they they have, right? Sure. But if we can eliminate a million, 10 million discrete mm. interactions with the mainframe via some sort of the 3270 interaction layer, if we can eliminate millions of discrete interaction, mm. we not, as we've said, we not only save on latency, we actually reduce overhead on the platform. Everything becomes more efficient. Now, I, I feel us being dragged um, by, by uh, the power of Segway into talking about your analytics engine. I'm not going to let you go there yet because I'm so fascinated by the potential and power of what you have. I, I have a saying I like to say, the better you are, the more room you have for improvement. Uh, it's, it's like increasing your surface area. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it sounds like you've taken this wonderful journey over the past two decades of discovering all the ways you can improve. And I'm going to guess that you probably in the back of your mind and probably in front of your mind have a million ideas for doing things even better. So I want to just plumb a couple of things you may already be doing or probably thinking about. And one of them is uh, when we think about an optimizing compiler, uh, obviously you want to be super careful not second guessing what the user is up to when you get a whole giant list of things you want to do. Mm -hmm. But if you got binding and unbinding to the same place and stuff like that, uh, what sort of thing that are you doing or do you have in mind to do? Take that that you know giant piece of please do this for me and and make it run even more effectively. <laughs> well, that's a great question, and um, I'd say not a week goes by that we're not talking to our customers and getting. Uh, taking inbound requests and comments. So, uh, our cost, I would, I, I, I love our customers for many reasons. One of them being they are not shy mm. to tell us exactly um, what what they'd like for us to focus on. So right now in the engine, and uh, in, in the integration engine, we're doing a number of things that have not only to do with speed and efficiency, but also being able to tackle broader use cases. One of them I'll just say that we're kind of uh, intrigued by and adding features by is that, uh, or in, around is a lot of our, our, I mean, if you own a mainframe today, let's just stipulate that you operate in a hybrid environment, period. Mm, and, right. and no one, no one runs, <laughs> everything they have on the mainframe, that at least right. not in our customer set. And so what they're wanting to do is to build these integration scripts that not only communicate with data and applications running under kicks, they wanna be able to also integrate with data and, and APIs off the mainframe. So imagine a request that comes in and to fire off an integration script, as we call it, running under kicks. And that integration script, then sure, it goes, it runs a few transactions, links to a few programs, accesses some data, but let's imagine that some data that's required in this process is sitting over um, on a, a Microsoft Azure data lake. And what we need to be able to do is fire an HTTP request over to an endpoint to be able to access that data and bring it back. Well, great, we can do that. 
Or let's imagine that now, once that business process concludes, that before the data, the results flow back to the requester, we want to actually log something out to some sort of an operational data store. So we can make some sort of an outbound HTTP call from the Kix platform to be able to, to prep and move that, that activity data down there. Well, those are the, that, that's certainly doable in our, in our platform now. And those are the sorts of things where we see our customers guiding us and, and driving us down, uh, using our, making our integration engine not just something that interacts with all of these mainframe-ish components, you would expect that, but all of these non-mainframe or, or hybrid components because the services of the future are going to, to, to require data and apps from all of your hybrid sources, not just uh, the mainframe or not just Azure or AWS or Google. Now, the, the one other thing I'm aware of not having touched on yet before I, I let us go babbage on your analytics engine is, is the development and testing process of these scripts. Um, what, what tools or what approach do you recommend in order to have a, a well-QA'd uh, chunk of, of instructions being sent off to the mainframe? That's a good question. You know, our customers take different approaches here. And so uh, we are very free and open uh, with or kind of open minded about kind of the development end of this. Uh, most of our customers still use um, an Eclipse based development ah, uh, model okay. and platform. So we provide a plug in that that just snaps into Eclipse for them to use. Uh, many of them still use or are using Eclipse because uh, they have their mainframe based version control components that also mm -hmm. nicely snap into an Eclipse framework. Um, right. Some of our customers now are beginning to use VS Code uh, as a development mm -hmm. platform. So we have an active project where we're uh, supporting our customers doing that and making sure that that we support um, the VS Code approach. Uh, ultimately, uh, where we see our customers going is using pure web-based tools um, to be able to do this as opposed to some sort of a, you know, um, on, on workstation editor, whether it be VS Code or Eclipse. Um, many of our organizations are wanting to move to just a pure web-based um, edit, test, run, deploy sort of a model. Uh, and so that's really strategically uh, where we're taking our development tooling. But again, it all depends upon uh, customers, their input and their requirements. Sure. Okay, well, Babbage will not wait any longer. Tell us about your, <laughs> not analytical engine like Babbage, but your analytics engine. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, uh, this is a story that's near and dear to my heart. And again, it starts with a customer. I got a call one day from, uh, from a customer and they kind of went like this. It said, hey, Russ, uh, and I love, we got a problem. And if you want to make my day, that's how you start the phone mm. call. And he said, here's the reality. Our, trans our business is growing nicely, you know, 8%, 10%, 12% per year. But our mainframe transaction volume is growing asymmetrically higher mm. relative to our business, right? Mm -hmm. So... Business growing nice, transaction involving growing asymmetrically to the underlying business activity. Mm. And it was like, what's up with that? We, we cannot deduce 
why this is occurring. We know it's occurring. We have an idea that it has to do with a bunch of screen scraping activity that's out in the field somewhere, but we can't see it. So it's something like we're talking about an order in log in or even order n squared issue. Oh, it is. And and the data is compelling. <laughs> so so we didn't have and I, I had to uh, say, you know, that's that's an astounding recommendation. I mean, I, I no, I don't have any magic thing on the shelf. Mm. Uh, but would you work with us? Would you collaborate with us to try to invent this? Mm. And they said, sure. And so um, we, over a period of, of weeks and months, conceived of a solution. That solution sent us headlong into a whole new area uh, of the company that we now call integration analytics. Mm. And, the, and the reason we call it that, and th that is that there's no shortage of tools to help customers zoom in on what's going on in or around their, you know, in their network mm. outside the mainframe. And there are, there's no shortage of tools that let organizations zoom in on the mainframe and figure out, oh, yes, we ran transaction XYZ, and on average, it took 350 microseconds and did five IOs. Well, great, mm -hmm. right? And we ran it 30 million times today. Great. Mm -hmm. But there was nothing to let them see the forest for the trees. There was nothing to mm -hmm. let them say, to ask the question now, why are we running that transaction 30 million times a day? And mm. what is the business processes in which it's tangled up? And who are the end users who are causing this? Now, th that's, that is not obvious. There are no good mm. tools. It turned out there just aren't a lot of good tools to answer that, that question. And so what we did, we... Uh, we authored some new intellectual property um, in and around how you could track this um, under the covers of kicks. And it, it, it took the form of a new US patent in from Hostbridge. That's uh, neither here nor there, I guess. But we, we, we really took a fresh look at this. And what we did, we said, wouldn't it be great if we could have just a tiny bit of very lightweight software running on the mainframe under kicks? And what this software would do is it would look over the shoulder of all of these input and output activities and grab a little bit of metadata, just mm. little bits that would let us understand the context in which this is occurring. And then we're going to take that metadata and by handling it in a very precise way, we're going to allow that metadata to naturally flow into the SMF records that are cut by CICS for every transaction. Hmm. Now, once we have that metadata, we call it the enriched information, right? Once we've enriched that SMF 110 data, now what can we do with it? And we thought, well, we need to be able to do some pretty sophisticated analysis on this, these patterns of interaction using a proper analytics platform and so we decided to use Splunk. And so oh. what, what our integration analytics practice and, and technology revolves around is a very lightweight collection of software components that run on the mainframe under kicks. And they're completely separate and distinct from our integration software components, but just mm. very lightweight components 
They grab little bits of metadata about each and every targeted category of request, whether it's 3270 interactions, HTTP, socket interactions, MQ, whatever. And then we grab that metadata and then we flow it along with the SMF data down to Splunk. And then we can do some pretty sophisticated analytics to be able to show customers their patterns of interaction. So now they can actually see and visualize all of that, typically all that screen scraping activity, all of these sources of automation, and they can actually see where are the opportunities for improvement? Where are, what are the things, what are the business processes that just beg to be optimized, right? And that's really what the integration analytics um, technology is for. It's to give customers for the first time a microscope so that they can actually see the forest for the trees, they can watch these interactions, and they can size and, and determine the latency, the excess latency, the excess CPU burn, um, all of the operational factors that comes from, um, that the, the operational implications of some of these legacy um, mm -hmm. integration patterns. Now, I'm going to nerd out on you for just a second, and then I'm going to go back to the use case that, that drove this. Um, as, as I think about this, so you're basically adding a bit to an existing SMF record that Kix is already cutting, and then you're using some way of either uh, paring down that SMF record just to the data you want and sending to Splunk or sending the whole record to Splunk uh, using some redirector. How do you do that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the technical details are there's a lot of flexibility here, so I'll describe it one way, but really customers can do it about any hour they want. We, we grab a number of different elements of metadata depending upon their use case. So for example, if it's 3270 applications, we can grab all the way down to the BMS maps that they're working with, the, what AID key was entered. Because what we want them to be able to do is actually see the, the, the pattern of interaction all the way down to the application level. Uh, we want a subject matter expert to look at from the metadata, kind of have an aha moment, as we mm. say, where we can say, oh, I see what they were trying to accomplish. Well, okay, so once then you we throw that onto an SMF record that's already on the way out of Kix. That's right. We add it to the SMF record. It's it's already on the Kix. Now, how much? Now, SMF record contains lots of data, <laughs> and we... so customers may or may not want to send all of those fields down, and they have lots of choices. Hmm. So, but once that data gets down there, whatever set or subset they they tend they they believe is important for them, it it definitely always includes CPU time and hmm. and all of the basic metrics. But um, once it gets down to Splunk, then uh, we can do all sorts of analytic work down there. And it, but again. We're not trying to answer questions that they can already answer. No one needs to, needs our integration analytics to tell them, oh, gee whiz, uh, we ran transaction XYZ 20 million times. They already know that. Mm. What they need to know is why. What is the business process? Mm. Who are the end users, both by the name of their, by their IP address, by their terminal net name, by their user mm. ID, who are the people and what are the groups within these organizations that are running these high impact, you know, 
business processes where they're doing orchestration outside the mainframe, mm. right? And so the, so, I, the whole idea is to let them see that. Mm-hmm. And, and Reg, I'll, I'll just jump to the chase here. It never Please. fails, never fails that we find some of, first of all, we find some of the most embarrassing things that you would imagine. <laughs> so for example, uh, but, but there are usually no more than eight to 10 problematic mm-hmm. patterns of interac- interaction. And if you address those eight to 10 use cases, mm-hmm. you will have addressed 80% ah. of, of the impact that they're causing. The it only takes eight to 10, absolutely. And so, and, and, that's, and that's the beauty. We think that's the exciting thing to us is now we have a tool to be able to show customers that they don't need to boil the ocean. Please don't boil the ocean or even think you need to. All right. you need to do is focus your, t- your time and attention on usually no more than eight or 10 problematic patterns of interaction. And if you get those right, um, you, will have, you, will have, you will have achieved a level of optimization on both the end user side and under the covers of the mainframe that you'll be very pleased with and you will, you will have saved money. Now, can you give us a little insight into the specific use case in terms of what was causing this this geometric increase? <laughs> yeah, now I'm not going to name the customer, but sure. um, here's um, here's what we found. So, for example, uh, there's there is an organization and they big mainframe customer, and they use their their sales force all across. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the world uses a very sophisticated set of Excel spreadsheets to be mm-hmm. able to interact with those applications. So the end user interacts mm-hmm. with Excel and the Excel spreadsheets interact with the mainframe via, you got it, terminal emulation and screen scraping. <laughs> well, um, it turned out that when um, a rep kind of put pushed into a new order, the next thing they really want to know is, uh, when is that order accepted, right? Well, well, okay. Now, so let's imagine how would how would a programmer 20 years ago, um, knowing nothing more than Visual Basic and having uh, a Halopi, you know, knowing nothing more mm-hmm. than Visual Basic and Halopi, mm-hmm. how would they solve that problem? How would they detect when the order status changes? Enter, what the, enter, enter. Exact, Press the enter. Enter. And so at this organization, when when we did the Pareto analysis on them to find what is the most expensive automated process, both in terms of real time and CPU time on the mainframe, it was a script that did nothing more than press the enter key every 200 milliseconds. <laughs> I call it winning the enterprise. That's right. It pressed the enter key every 200 milliseconds for and we found use cases up to it would take in some cases given processing delays or complexity of the order it would take anywhere from 10,000 to 20,000 discrete interactions every 200 milliseconds for a for the status indication on a particular field to change from pending (laughs) to accepted well now now so what happens if you talk about the scalability thing, what happens as your organization grows and you add sales reps? Mm. It's not 
It's not rocket science, right? <laughs> These sorts of 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 all of the the you know kind of the monster kind of comes out of the woodwork and now you have all of these macros doing all of this screen scraping and automation at at across distributed networks and um, in in arguably the least efficient way possible mm. so the to do for this customer was okay we need to stop that right <laughs> yeah we're going to create an order status api that has a callback mm. function Right. Nice. So in, instead of beating on the inner key every 200 milliseconds, let's just make a one shot API or what or better yet. Why don't we just send an email out of the mainframe to the sales rep when the order status changes? Mm. And so they nice. can go off and do something else. And let's make our business process more event driven and save mm. ourselves. Oh, I don't know. A, a few million transactions every day. So awesome. it's, we see a lot of things like that, that are honestly to the customers, they're, they're quite embarrassing, mm. but we just have to say, look, you're, you're not alone. We see this every day and mm. our job is to show it to you and help you conceive of strategies and tactics to fix it. This has been outstanding. We need to start winding down now, but I don't want to miss anything else you had in mind to share. Uh, but let me prompt you a bit. On the one hand, if there's anything else, uh, some of the innovations or experiences you guys have dealt with over the next five minutes, um, but also want to hear your take on the future. You know, I mean, you, you're in a position to really have a vision for the future, not just of what you hope and expect to see, but what you hope to make happen with your involvement in the ecosystem. So maybe just a few closing thoughts. There. Yeah, well, you know, the future, um, let's see, how would I say? On, on the one hand, it's really exciting because mm -hmm. we have all these developments, at least in the world of the mainframe, like IBM coming out with a Z16. Mm -hmm. I mean, just a, a, an incredible technology Greatest platform. computer ever created. Unbelievable stuff. And I mean, I just can't wait to get my hands in, you know, you know, when mm -hmm. you're a software vendor, you have to kind of moderate your because you, you really can't mm -hmm. get ahead of your customers. So we don't have any customers right. with Z16s, but as soon as we do, there are all sorts of, you know, tools and technologies and goodies under the covers that we will exploit. But on the other hand, things honestly as exciting as that ends, sometimes I get a little depressed because I've spent the better part of the last 20 years trying to put a stake in the heart mm -hmm. of screen scraping <laughs> and emulation as an integration technique or technology. Mm. But where are we? Well, we live in a world right now where one of the most popular um, tech and, mo and modern, <laughs> in quotes, technology platform is the use and deployment of robotic process automation platforms, RPA. Mm. Now, if you open up your shiny new RPA platform box and you wanna build an RPA that, um, that goes against the mainframe, what's the easiest way to do to do that with what are you tempted to uh, do Rich? what would you imagine you heard vonnegut's player piano you know oh. he talks about these guys are basically all their movements are recorded but there's no optimization it's it's the movements based on a legacy of humans doing this exactly so what do we see we see honestly we, we see as exciting as things are and as amazing as the frame that are continuing to perpetuate brittle, um, costly, inefficient ways of interacting with the mainframe. So mm -hmm. our message is 
you know, there's nothing wrong. We, we think RPA platforms are great, but please, please, please do not perpetuate the use mm. of emulation and screen scraping as a methodology for achieving automation to the mainframe. Please, whether it's our technology or mm. whatever, use something other than that and you will be far more, um, you, you will be setting yourself up for success, mm. not back-end mainframe uh, scalability problems and ultimately mm. costly failures. So optimize forward, don't rely on what, just because something already worked doesn't mean that it's the best way to do it going forward. That's right. Stop, 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 please stop. <laughs> high volume, mm. in, you know, using high volume um, terminal emulation and screen scraping as an integration technique. It is it it is only it is only going to make it more difficult for you to find your future on the on system Z. Any other thoughts just before we finish up? No, other than it's um, I always like to in these contexts just say um, a shout out to not only uh, the 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 folks at Hostbridge, we have just an amazing team of people, mm -hmm. but also our customers. I mean, frankly, we customers. So I would just say to your listeners, um, if if any of this sounds intriguing, uh, just send send us an email, uh, pick up the phone, call us. We are we are. We are available and we love to visit, whether you're a customer now or you just have a use case you'd like to visit with. We would love to visit and learn more about their requirements. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much, Russ. This has been fascinating and informative. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, so I'll be back with another podcast next month. But in the meantime, check out the other content on Tech Channel. You can also subscribe to their weekly newsletters, webinars, ebooks, solutions directory, and more on the subscription page. I'm Reg Harbeck.